evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Mob Museum. Thank you for being with us. My name is Michael Green. I'm filling in for Jeff Schumacher, our director of content who's under the weather. And I have the pleasure of moderating this panel in connection with Mobbed Up, the podcast powered by the Las Vegas Review Journal and the Mob Museum. And we thank them and we thank our presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management, our supporting sponsors, Golden Steer Steakhouse and El Cortez Hotel and Casino. And we ask you to put your phones on vibrate, keep your masks on and do all of those things we're supposed to do these days. I have the great pleasure of introducing an all-star panel. Uh, Jeff Gehrman is a longtime distinguished Las Vegas journalist who's been a member of the Review Journal's investigative unit for several years, and he was the major domo of this podcast. <laughs> You're too kind. Ed Nigro was involved with uh, trying to purchase the Aladdin. He had had already a career in the Air Force with other hotel casinos. Uh, he has since had a tremendous career in banking and he's going to share some of his reminiscences. And Robert List was a two-term attorney general of Nevada, then was governor, and had the great pleasure of dealing with all of these problems the Aladdin had. Pleasure may not be the word, but we appreciate all of you being here. It's a pleasure for us to have you here. And uh, I'd like to start with a little context for you. Uh, the Aladdin, and the various things related to it, that was the subject of the second season of Mobbed Up. The first season talked about the sort of casino world, if you will, Frank Collada, Tony Spilatro, what happened with Argent, uh, some of the things that went on at the Tropicana. And now with this second season, so far there have been, between the two seasons, 1.1 million downloads of this podcast. And it's a tribute to the people who were behind the podcast uh, that it has gotten so much attention and so much favorable coverage. Jeff Gehrman was behind season two, and I thought I'd ask you, you've covered the news here, written a book about the Ted Binion case, uh, but podcasting was new for you. Uh, how did this come about and how did it come to fruition? Well... I guess it came about because they asked me to do it. That's a good reason. Uh, but, but, um, <laughs> you know, most people know me as, as an old school journalist, right? I, I guess simply because I've, I've been here so long. But um, my goal in, in, in putting this together was to try to provide a context, a little more insight into that era, the 70s, the late 70s and the early 80s in terms of the mob uh, on the strip through my own experiences covering the mob and through my, the knowledge that I built up over the years uh, from covering the mob. And, and that's what I was uh, hoping to do. And I was hoping to provide a more of a learning, a deeper learning experience for the listeners. But as it turned out, um, it was a learning experience for me uh, as well, because I had never, uh, though I'd been in print all these, you know, for more than 40 years, I'd never done any kind of a broadcast project like this. I hadn't written, uh, I, for example, I, I didn't, had no experience in, in writing the scripts for this broadcast style. Broadcast style is a little bit um, shorter, maybe, or more concise, precise, and punchier. So I had to learn that on the on the fly. I didn't. I hadn't recorded any, uh, you know, done any recordings like these episodes that I had to do. So that was all new, and I was kind of learning on the fly. Uh, but fortunately, we had a really great team uh, behind all this, from the editors on down. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, people were patient with me <laughs> and, uh, uh, I mean, everyone was patient with me and, and, and they gave me the kind of guidance that I, that I needed to really, uh, to help make this thing kind of successful. And it, it turned out to be kind of fun in, in the, in the long run. Um, I don't know. I think that the thing that I took away from it the most was that it, I, 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 it kind of, uh, I kind of rediscovered how, um, colorful that period was uh in those days and and um you know you mentioned tony spalatro you can't i mean the mob was everywhere in in the late 70s and 80s in las vegas and tony spalatro you can't talk about the mob in las vegas without talking about tony spalatro and he ran around town like he like he owned it right he had his 
his uh, uh, bodyguards, some of his entourage. And, um, you know, he'd go out to bars, nightclubs. He, he was very visible. And at the same time, he was very active, you know, in the rackets. You name a racket, and he was involved in it here in Las Vegas. Um, you know, loan sharking, illegal gambling, uh, fencing stolen jewelry. Uh, they ran a burglary uh, ring with uh, uh, Frank Collada, the star of uh, season one of Mobbed Up and his, long, you know, his childhood friend. And of course, he was involved in skimming and, and uh, in the casino. So it, it was just a very colorful time. There was so much going on. Not a day went by when there was a story that we didn't that we didn't have to write about the mob, or maybe two stories, three stories. I just learned from the people, uh, the more than two dozen people or so that we interviewed, that it, it, just how colorful and how exciting it was uh, to be a reporter in the in those days. And and uh, I think I matured as a reporter from some, you know from some of the experiences that I had in those days. So it was it was really a lot of fun to be honest with you. Well. It was a lot of fun to listen to as well. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I hope it, I hope it turned out uh, well. Well, it, it did. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Governor List was a part of it. And before becoming governor, you were attorney general, so you certainly knew about the challenges posed by organized crime. When you became governor, did you expect that the mob would play such a significant role during your time in office? I had a sense that it might, uh, because I went through the Lefty Rosenthal case when I was attorney general, and that we really laid the groundwork there for the, the legal standards to which uh, casino operators can be held accountable. Um, specifically, uh, he had uh, he'd been at the, at the Stardust Hotel, and uh, we decided we felt he was mobbed up, and we called him forward for licensing and the control board and Commission uh, found him to be unsuitable, and of course he he took it to court, and my staff uh, won the case in the lower court, and uh, then it went to the state supreme court, and I argued the case there personally against uh, uh, a fellow who had been the the solicitor general of the United States and dean of the Harvard Law School, Erwin Griswold, who was probably the foremost constitutional lawyer in the country. And we won it in the state Supreme Court, and then they went to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, with a writ, and uh, we prevailed there. So uh, we knew at that point that we, it was sort of the tip of the iceberg, and it wasn't long after he became governor that the FBI came to me with the uh, transcripts of the wiretaps and the, the total scope of what they had done. Uh, was was incredible. It was amazing. They had over 70 people that had been uh, subject to the wiretaps. And in the end, uh, it, it enabled us really to transform the industry in Nevada uh, with a lot of help from a lot of people, good people on the board, the commission, uh, the public uh, stood with us. And it was it was a very, very tough and difficult time, but we got it done actually in uh, within one year of the time that we undertook that task. We had taken away the licenses of, uh, of seven uh, hotels and casinos and resorts, um, about half of the strip actually, and um, found new, new buyers for them. And just processing those applications was huge. We went to the legislature and I must credit them also, they gave us uh, 87 new agents, uh, which virtually doubled the size of the number of agents of the Gaming Control Board. And in fact, before we did that, or at the time we did that, the, uh, uh, there were very few that had been there more than three years. They were pretty, pretty green uh, investigators. We also got a, a training officer and set up a training program for all the new agents and uh they're the one they're the ones i would credit for getting all those investigations done and, and in such short order and keeping the places mostly open and uh operating and employing people and, and started collecting taxes <laughs> and uh, the entire world changed uh, out on the las vegas taxes 
Taxes. Yeah. Taxes. But we state employees, thank you. <laughs> what did you think, Governor, when you when you looked at all those FBI transcripts, when they dropped that on you? What were you thinking when, when that when, when when that occurred? I was amazed. I I got this package and um it's one, it's one of the few times I didn't work continually in my office. I took everything home to the governor's mansion, and I sat there for several days, pouring through it, reading it, learning from it, making notes, um, and it was incredible to me, the, the information they had gathered, the job that the FBI had done, and it, it actually was an incredible step on the part of the FBI to trust my administration and to trust our, our people, Gaming Control Board, the commission, and myself for that matter, because there had been a very, very strained relationship uh, between the feds and the state of Nevada for going back for uh, decades, actually decades. And this was the first time that uh, they came to us and sought our cooperation. And it, it formed the basis of what is today an excellent working relationship still. And one of the licenses was the Aladdin that your administration had to deal with. And when the Aladdin mob crowd was being driven out, uh, there were a couple of different groups trying to buy it. And one was Mr. Nigros with some guy named Johnny Carson, uh, who, who I think we've heard of. So how did you become involved with Johnny Carson in this whole operation? Well, that goes back about five years, four years before the Aladdin, because I was a, a very young CEO of the Sahara. And the Sahara was having some difficulties. This is the mid-70s. And when I became the CEO for Dell Webb, now Dell Webb was a public company. And we were the first licensed public company in this state. Uh, was Dell Webb Corporation before Caesars. Right. And uh, Dell Webb was, uh, had died in 74. But I took over the Aladdin, I mean, excuse me, the uh, Sahara. And one of the things we were really weak in, I had, <laughs> I remember the briefing I got going in. I had, look at these expenses. They're entirely too high. You've got to get these expenses under control. If you cut $2 million in expenses, you'll get that right to the bottom line. And I looked at it. Now, this was our chief financial officer of the parent talking to me. And I said uh, to myself, that's not quite what I see here. I see no business. I see no revenue. But one of the things that went after were entertainers. And I made our entertainment director's uh, name was Jack Iglesh. He wasn't the entertainment director when I went there. Jack had an orchestra. We had a house orchestra, a 30-piece orchestra. And then before I got there, years before, Johnny used to play at the Sahara. And when Johnny came to the Sahara, he used to do his skits like he did on The Tonight Show all the time, if some of you are familiar with him. And Jack Iglesh played the straight man for Johnny. So they had a great relationship. Well, after I'd been to the Sahara for about a year and a half and we started to build a, my first good star I got was Don Rickles. I hired him away from the Riviera. And then Jack would go to Caesars to bring his orchestra over there because we shared orchestras in those days because Johnny wanted a full orchestra and he wanted Jack to do the skits with. Now picture this. Now this is, this is how fortunes, some fortuitous events happen. Here's my entertainment director on the stage at Caesar's Palace with one of their, their biggest star. And he comes home to me. He comes home. He comes back to the Sahara one evening and he says to me, Ed, Johnny's not happy. And I said, what's he not happy about? He's the highest paid star in the, the state. He's got the best uh, showroom, which had, I think, 1,600, 1,400 seats then. We only had 1,000. And it was a much newer property. The Sahara was a little tired. We were busy trying to renovate it. And he said, well, two things are really bugging him. One, they won't. Let him, they only will let him play two weeks in a row, two shows a night, and he doesn't want to do that anymore. He'd just like to play weekends. They wouldn't let him play weekends there because they felt if they let him do that, all their stars, their other big stars would want to do it. And I said, what's the second reason? He said, Frank, Sinatra. Because that was the time 
that Caesars was offering Frank a piece of Caesars if he would play there. You know, they were actually, and he was going to put him up for licensing, which was yeah. going to be a... That's a whole story. That, that's another whole story. Yeah. So I said, seriously, I said, you think we have a shot at him? And he said, let's go talk to him. I said, he ought to meet you. So we went to dinner over at Caesars between shows at the Bacchanal Room. I always kind of remember this because Caesars picked up the tab. <laughs> I thought that was a little <laughs> ironic. But we sat, we sat down, Johnny and Jack and I, and this is how Johnny did his deals. He had no agent and he never would sign a contract because he was, he was turned around once by William Morris. And so he never had an agent again. So we sat at dinner and we started to talk and chat small talk and we had dinner and we finally got to the thing about would he come back to the Sahara? And he said, well, you know, Ed, how would it work? And I said, you, you want weekends? We'll do only weekends. And he said, you will? And he said, but I need a Learjet to pick me up right after the Tonight Show Friday night. See, it filmed at 530, you know, in, uh, in, in uh, beautiful downtown Burbank. Burbank, thank you. In downtown, beautiful, how can I ever forget it? <laughs> and so we pick him up. At about uh, uh, seven o'clock, the jet would be waiting and fly him in. I said, sure, we'll do that. And then after the Sunday midnight show, he'd play two shows on Friday night, two shows. I mean, he'd play, uh, yeah, he'd do uh, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. And then he would do, um, he would leave Sunday morning because our new group would come in on Sunday. I said, we can do that. And he said, but the Sahara is a little tired. I said, yeah, but I'm working hard on that. <laughs> I said, working really hard on what 30 years had done to it. And he said, well, the last thing is how much will I make? And I said, well, you charge, and this is true, $29.95 for your show. And I said, I don't think we should charge more for your show at the Sahara. He said, yeah, you're right on that, Ed. <laughs> And I said, so $29.95, I have 1,000 seats, so I'll pay you 30000 a show. He said, well, that's a less than I'm making here. And I said, yeah, I kind of figured it was. But it's not too bad, is it? And he said, no, it's not too bad. But if you let me do all that, I'll come and visit you tomorrow to look at the Sahara. And when I leave here, rather, on, uh, it was uh, Sunday, I think, was his last show. And so Sunday, uh, Monday, he stayed over and came over to the Sahara. And I showed him around and the showroom was tired and his dressing room was really tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to say, that's putting it nicely. It was uh, not what Johnny was used to. And, uh, but I said, if you come, I'm going to, I'll do the showroom over it and I'll have the dressing room for sure when you come here. And he said, well, he put his hand out, shook hands with me and said, I'm coming. I'll give you seven or eight, maybe 10 weekends a year. I won't sign a contract. Do we have a deal? And you better fix this showroom up. I said, we got a deal. I said, good. So how long before you come? He said, three weeks. I said, three <laughs> weeks. And we managed to do the show. The, the, we put a big sign on the dressing room. Welcome home, Johnny, from the staff. And I had him make a special cake for him. And the kitchen staff came out. We took him through to meet the staff again. I walked him through the whole hotel. We wanted him to feel like he was really part of us. And Johnny and I hit it off after that. He played for the next three years for us. And I used to, it's, it's too long a story to tell here of how our relationship, but that's how our relationship built. So when I decided to go on my own and left Del Webb uh, on my own, because I was running their whole state at that time. I was running all our casinos. You had given me eight licenses at that time. <laughs> Not you personally, but I <laughs> but uh, he called me. Henry called me, Bushkin. Remember the bombastic Bushkin? Well, Henry <laughs> called me up and said, Johnny wants to talk to you. Can you call him at home? Here's, I had his home number. And I said, sure. So I call him at home, and Johnny says, Ed, let's buy a casino together. Now, what dream words would you ever hear in your life? But Johnny Carson saying, let's buy a casino together. And I said, well, I'm working on one right now, possibly the Aladdin. I said, I have certain. And that's how we got started. on it. Now, in the end, you didn't end up with the Aladdin. And that's a story unto itself as well. And both of you 
had uh, some encounters in that process. And I know, Governor, you've been close well, to Wayne Newton. You were close to the Carson. Things, they're the bidders. Yeah. One of the things, though, that was really important to, to me at the time, because this was before we, I'd been asked to go in and take over operations of the Sahara, which was an extraordinarily risky venture, and I knew that, was that the Sahara was taken over by the judge. Remember, he grabbed it right out of control of, Richard, of, of, of the gaming control board and the gaming commission. Judge Claiborne. Judge Claiborne. Yeah, the Aladdin. Yeah. First time. You mean the Aladdin. Yeah, the Aladdin. The Aladdin. Yeah. First time in the history yeah. of this state. I know. That's ever happened because you were about to shut it down. We were. And it, it deserved to be shut well, down. We ordered, although, them, we ordered them to, uh, to, get, to get a buyer in. They yeah. had to go. They had to go. And if, in fact, the Aladdin was probably the, one of the easiest cases to make because uh, the main operators of that property had already been convicted yes. in court of criminal charges. And so, I mean, we ordered them to get, get a buyer, and they delayed, and they delayed, and they delayed, and then they brought in Del Coleman, uh, yeah. who could never pass muster. And uh, that stalled us for a while, and we kept after them, and finally we said, we're going to close you down, which we last thing we wanted to do, put all those people out of work, but... It, Push came to shove. We said, "You know, you're done here. We're gonna, you, you guys have to leave." And at that point, of course, they went to uh, Judge Claiborne, and he said, "He he put us under a first a preliminary uh, restraining order, and then a, a preliminary injunction." Right, and that was sought by the Aladdin owners, the people you were trying to you had kicked out. Yeah, right. yeah, they're the they ones who went to Judge Claiborne. Yeah, yeah. this was Circus Webby and the right. bad guys, and right. uh, they, they wanted so, to stay put. You both had have some thoughts on how Judge Claiborne handled that whole oh. Aladdin situation. <laughs> Why were you? What was it that upset you guys about about the way he handled that? Well, number one, uh, and ultimately it was borne out that the state of Nevada has a very unique regulatory the best. Uh, right. I think. And they're the ones who have the discretion to make a decision on whether someone who holds this privilege, it's not a right, it's a privilege, uh, to operate a casino uh, is enabled to continue or they have to get out. And it's uh, that's a precedent that came out of the... Uh, Rosenthal case from yeah. when I was AG. And uh, I, I said earlier that laid the foundation. And really what he did was to cross that line and interfere and substitute his judgment for that of the experts. And uh, ultimately we, we got to the Ninth Circuit with that. We took mm -hmm. an appeal and we prevailed and his order was rolled back. But he had a reputation of of being a bit of a renegade. Um, he was a controversial judge in many instances and ultimately uh, was charged with, with bribery, which was never proven. Uh, so that particular 40 case. case right. In 40 case. Yeah. But, but he, he was, was convicted in, of, uh, of... But he was uh, impeached. I, Iris, uh, of uh, IRS uh, tax evasion. Yeah. And the then he was, he was impeached uh, by the United States Senate, which is... A huge thing. I think there have only been Oscar was his lawyer, right? But there's, a whole, other, but there's a whole other. But there's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, other well, story. there's a whole other story yeah. about what well, led to his. My experience with Claiborne was quite unique because here he had taken control of the Aladdin away from the state of Nevada, away from the, the gaming agents, away from the state. Now realizing that here you have this big casino that does not have any responsibility to the state all of a sudden. It can't because the, the judge arrested that uh, from the state. So when they were, they, they really desperately needed management in there and we were kind of getting close to a deal with these owners that were very slippery and very difficult to work with and that were never forth truly forthcoming in terms of what their intentions were ever. Even when they signed a deal with us, they walked from it. But having said that, I agreed to go in. Sometimes I wonder if it was the best decision I ever made. 
probably not. But I, even though I went and met with the judge, I asked uh, my attorney at the time was Herb Jones. And I asked her, set a meeting with Richard. Not only did he set a meeting with Richard, but Richard and Harry and Herb and I met in Herb's office. And we're talking so Richard Bunker. Richard Bunker was Harry Reid. Senator Harry Reid was chairman of the Gaming Commission. Right. And Richard Bunker was chairman of the Gaming Control Board. Now, the Control Board is the enforcement division, and the commission is the final decision. Right. And all, all the members of the commission and all the members of the Control Board are appointed by this gentleman to my left. The governor appoints them. They're part of the executive branch of government. And so I knew from years in Nevada, I never would call the governor on a gaming matter. That would be extremely inappropriate. But I would talk to Richard or to, ha or, or to Chairman or Senator Reed at the time. And so we met in their offices and I, I said, if, if I have your approval, I'll take it. But if I don't have your backing, because I'm going to need agents, I asked Richard, I'm going to need people to really back us up in there. And I don't trust anybody more than I trust the state uh, gaming people. And Harry and Richard said, we got your back. So I told the judge I would do it. And so I did it. I took the job, but I brought a whole team in. And when I met with, with the judge the first time, he said, now, I want you to keep this place. He was a very rough guy, very crusty around the edges. I mean, he was like a real cowboy almost in his office. And he was, he reminded me of Sheriff Lamb a little bit, you know, back in the old days. In the old days, when you wanted a casino license in Nevada, you went and saw the sheriff and you paid him 500 bucks and you got a casino license. <laughs> but that was way before the control board came in. So the judge said, now go, go do it. Just go keep the, and I'll, excuse me, you keep the GD place open. He swore a lot too. Every other word was almost a swear word in his chambers. <laughs> So I went, and after, but see, the, the, the mob knew how to take money, and I knew how to stop it. I knew how to run tight casino. And we went in, and we took control of the cage. We took control of the food and beverage. We took control of purchasing. We took control of the casino floor, the casino manager. I took control of accounting and finance. And we locked down every possible sieve, but we had a lot of bad people that were still trying to take money out. I had to let about 150 people go. And these were all people that had their hands in the till one way or another. With our internal controls, it wasn't hard to find them very quickly. So after about five weeks, the newspapers published uh, this Black Friday at the Aladdin. Yeah. And my uh, Herb gets this call at 11.30 Sunday night from Claiborne, the judge. And he says, you have that little SOB in my office. He called me a little SOB. I guess it's better than being a big SOB. But he said, you have him in the office uh, by himself without you. I don't want any council present at 8 a.m. tomorrow. And Herb called me at midnight and said, we got a problem. And I said, what's, what's the problem? He said, run the place. That's all he told me. So I'm going to run it. And he said, uh, I don't know. He's really upset. So I went in to see the judge and I, I walked in and he said, you don't need to sit down. <laughs> so I figured this is going to be a very short meeting. I'm probably being fired. <laughs> so I said, well, your honor, what, what, what did you want to see me about? He said, I sent you there to save jobs, not to let people go. He said, I've been getting calls, and I knew he was getting calls from St. Louis. He was, these were all people from Cleveland, St. Louis, and Chicago. And all of them were members of different groups that were controlling. Mail and George's group had the slots. Another group had the table games. Another group had purchasing. And they all got their money out of each section. Well, I said, I, I bet you have. And he said, and I don't like those damn calls. And he, I said, well, they were, they were all part of the system that was stealing. That's the only reason why we let them go. And he turned beet red. Now what's he going to say to me? So he used another very profane word and get, said, get out. <laughs> and I said, your honor? And he said, get out. 
And I said, does that mean I'm fired? And he said, no, I just don't ever want to talk to you again. Get out of my office. Well, I go back and I call Herb up. And I said, he didn't fire me. And he didn't tell me he wanted something done. He just said he never wants to talk to me again. <laughs> so I called up Herb and he called Richard. And I said, I need to meet with Richard. And I met actually with Richard and George Schwartz came over yeah. to my office at the Aladdin. I said, remember that day in the office when you said you got my back? Well, now yeah, I really need you <laughs> because we're running this place really exposed. The judge said, he's not covering me and our people that are here. But it was sort of ironic in the sense that here I was. No one has been in this position ever before with our team in there. And we had nobody to report to. And so fortunately, we had really great controls and internal controls. And then I had George met with me and we brought in agents that I put in various places in the back end, in the front end, in the cage. No one knew this because we wanted to make sure that uh, we were protected from the standpoint of accusations of malfeasance or, you know, not, not doing things right. And so my episode with the judge, we never saw him again until he called a meeting about the sale. And that's when the, the I said we got double cross. That's when the double cross started. Well, what do you think that had an impact on your bid, yours and Johnny's bid, your your relationship, or 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 I don't know how well, to describe it, a poor relationship. I was told and you on, know, on your effort. Yeah, to I was told by no, I I don't think so. I think they knew they were not going to sell it to us from the very beginning because I was told that. Who now, told you, who told you that? <laughs> I, well, I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Ne Why never open up to a reporter. Many of you may have heard the name Mo Daylitz, and, and some of you may not know about Mo Daylitz. But I met Mo Daylitz way back in Hughes days because he was instrumental in getting the sale of the Sahara and the uh, Desert Inn and the Frontier to Howard Hughes. Right. Because he was Meyer Lansky's representative in Las Vegas for years. And Meyer Lansky was the finance guy who did all of the arranging with the pension funds to get the loans. Because that was the biggest problem that the state had. That all of these hotels in those days were owned by individual owners. And they all had this pension fund money that was all connected to Lansky. Right. And the banks weren't going to loan them any money. Only so they had to go to the pension fund. Yeah, it seems there's there was no financing yes, for anything right. in those days. So they couldn't raise capital. Uh, so it made your job ten times as hard because you couldn't just shut down the whole strip. And the, none of the co public corporations couldn't own the properties, and so they couldn't go to Wall Street. We couldn't money. get financing, and so the 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 the, the mob went to uh, yeah. went to Jimmy Hoffa exactly. So that this, this part of moving the mob out was also part of the transition of financing these casinos. Because remember, I told you they were all individual owners with, quote, investors. Oh, man, those investors, you got to watch out for those people. But and the people that were running them or supposedly running them were just actually we, call, we knew the different terms for them, representatives, front men, whatever you wanted to call them. So it was a long, tough process for regulators to move them out. But I met Mo back yeah. those days, and I used to play golf with him some, and with my dad, who was president of Sands at the time. And when I went to Dale Webb, Mo, Mo, Mo was also a very big benefactor for, for Las Vegas in those days. Yes, he gave he was. a lot of money. I was chief Barker head of variety clubs, which ran the Tony for Beal, and we did all of the we, did, we were the biggest fundraising group for needful children, mostly children with various handicaps. And we had special schools for them. And Mo gave, one day Mo comes, calls me and says, Ed, call me down. And he hands me a check. He writes out to, to uh, Variety for $600,000. And he gives them to him. And he says, here, go build that new center you wanted to build. And I looked at the check and and it, it said Ed Nigro on it. And I said, no, Mo, I handed it back. He said, you made this out wrong. He said, oh, yeah, I did. And he scratched it and he wrote Variety Club on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good move. <laughs> so, well, so, he was, he was, a, he was a, a very well-performing citizen in those days. We yeah. all knew him. You walk into the Las Vegas Country Club and 
There he sits in that same table on the left-hand yeah. side against the wall. Always. You know, um, and everybody knew him, and he was a benefactor. And this is in the days before the mob was really cleaned out that I'm referring yeah. to. And these guys were everywhere. They were all over oh, town. You talked about absolutely. Spilatro being all over town. So they all were. But Spilatro, to me, Spilatro was, was a hoodlum. You know, but he was a hoodlum. But that's he, different. You guys used to take campaign contributions from. Oh yeah, from yeah, they like did. That, right? Oh, every. But but that was not. That was the norm. Well, the, the, to a degree. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. in those Spilatro, yeah. Spilatro was. He, he, he was, was a, the exception. He was, he was not he was accepted a bad guy. He was no, just a, no. in, in society. No. But the other guys that we're talking sure. about, uh, Morris Schenker, yes. uh, he was everywhere. He contributed to everything. Uh, they, were, they were a part of our community. And we all knew they were going to be town. gone one day. I mean, we, we knew that. They just didn't quite, weren't ready for it. But <laughs> so, <laughs> so what did Mo tell you well, about When I started to go into the Aladdin, I used to have Mo would call me. Now, we all knew Mo's phones were always tapped even in those days. So he used to call me and say, I want to talk to you about Variety Club. And we meet at Denny's right around the corner from his, and we talk about the Aladdin. If he called me and said, I want to talk about Variety Club, that was my signal that he wanted to talk to me about the Aladdin because I had asked his advice. There were two people I asked advice of on buying the Aladdin, Hank Greenspun and Mo Dalitz, because I knew Mo knew everything. Yeah. And I knew, and Mo is in the beginning said, you know, you may just pull this off, you know, go, you, you should go for it. And I said, okay. And then about halfway through, uh, after we had a, Johnny and I had a few in uh, run, we were trying to raise money in those days. We ended up with just Johnny putting all the money up. But in those days we were trying to get an investment group together and talking to different people. And I actually started talking to National Kinney and we actually signed a t an initial deal with them. And then Mo called me up and I went and visited Mo and he said, be careful. He said, they were Warner Communications. You may not know all the back. They were Warner Brothers. National Kinney spun yeah. off Warner Brothers and they were all a parking lot business in New York. And he said, Ed, just stay away from National Kinney. So I broke, I broke the deal off. I did. No one else broke the deal off of National Kinney. Like me, All right, but it's because so. of bro. And then Mo said another time he called me and he said, "You're not going to get it, Ed." All right, and why? Why was that? And I said, "That's what I said." Why? He said, <laughs> "They just want to sell it to a friendly buyer, and you're not a friendly buyer." I said, "But we're going to pay him a lot of money." He said, "They'll get a lot more money the other way." I said, "Really?" And I said, "Am I at risk if I continue to try?" Because I think I have to at this point. I'm, I'm in a position where I just can't not try. And he said, I understand that. And he said, nothing will happen to you. Mm -hmm. Nobody will harm you in any way. And, you know, I knew from way back in the Hughes days that the mob didn't harm outsiders. They only harmed mostly themselves or sometimes targeted regulators or politicians that they didn't like that was the politicians and regulators were fair game but and a but, reporter once in a, <laughs> and a reporter once, once in a while a little bit just yeah. a, just a little yeah. but uh, <laughs> mostly I, I i so i felt you know that there wasn't going to be any admonition because uh i knew he talked to the main player in all this which though lansky had done a lot of the hoffa at this uh in Teamster financing. At the time I was involved, the Teamster pension fund was run by a New York Wall Street firm called Victor Palmieri. Mm -hmm. And I knew Victor because I had to negotiate with him to assume the, the loans because we were assuming the pension fund loan. And uh, we actually negotiated a deal to assume all of the loans, you know, when we were buying the uh, Aladdin. So when, when we announced it, we had the whole deal done, basically. All I had to do was put a signature to it. They wouldn't do it. So why was Wayne Newton and Ed Torres, why was their offer more attractive to these guys? At the well, office? their offer didn't surface until they walked from us. It was in the judges. We went and we had the signed deal. And I, 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 I brought an interesting thing about it because I wanted to let 
everyone know what our real deal was because everyone, there was a lot of, in order to walk as well, they tried to tarnish me and they tried to tarnish Johnny. And the way they tried to tarnish me was saying, well, because I was the one negotiating the deal. Henry Bushkin had little or nothing to do with it. Fred Freed, a transactional attorney in his office, and I did all the negotiating. When we went to New York to negotiate with the Teamsters, the pipefitting union, and the electrical union, there was there were 22 people in the room, and Fred and me. That's it. And a little side anecdote that you'll get a kick out of. I'm sitting in this meeting saying, well, we agreed to let you, and Circus Webby was there, too, because he represented all the owners. Right. And David Hurwitz, the other attorney for the owners. And so Sorkis says, well, Ed, we've been talking amongst ourselves. And he talked in this very gravelly voice and said, <laughs> we've been talking amongst ourselves. And I'm sitting here with all these Teamsters and all these pipe fitters and all these electrical unions and, and then all the Wall Street guys. And they're all there. We want you to give us a $20 million key man life insurance policy on you as part of the deal. And I said to them, I said, oh, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think I'm going to, where do I sign? <laughs> Can you imagine if you're worth more dead than alive, the minute you sign the deal, I said, that doesn't sound like a very attractive deal to me. Anyway, we didn't do that. But to get back to, to you know, where we, were, where, where we were heading is that so the, uh, the Aladdin proposition with Mo was that I wouldn't get hurt. I kind of knew, I, I knew, but I felt at the end they might just have to do our deal because here's what our deal was. $103 million. It eventually sold for 85. Now, ours was a real 103 million. We were going to pay 8 million down the first year to the owners. 8 million plus put 5 million in operating capital because I had written a report that said this place isn't going to survive without the infusion of 4 to 5 million dollars. Because everything we had done to shut down the holes wasn't building the business for tomorrow. So you can't run a successful place that can't build business for tomorrow and that can only try to stop the leaks for today. But I could only do what we could had a chance of doing. And then over the next six and a half years, we were paying them another 40, uh, $39 million. The total deal payment to them was $47 million plus the assumption of all the liabilities, which were 50 some million. Wow. So this was a very good deal for the owners. This was, and Johnny guaranteed when he put, we put the money up, we were guaranteeing the debt. You know what, here's what surprised me the most. Let's step back a minute and look at Johnny Carson. In those days, Johnny's income from the Tonight Show was 31 million a year. Johnny, Control over the night show was ironclad. And Wayne did a great show. I saw his show many times in Las Vegas. I don't think I ever saw a performer work harder than he did at his show. But he was a little, he was not the kind of star that Johnny Carson was. At a good night, Wayne would play in front of 1,600 people. On a, on a bad night, Johnny had 1.7 million viewers every night. Every night, he could make or break stars, entertainers, people on that show, but he was never vindictive. He always played low key and low ego. But that Tonight Show was so powerful. And that's what I was doing when I brought him over from Caesars. I knew I got the Tonight Show. I got to put every one of our stars on the Tonight Show before they appeared at the Sahara. Oh, he'd say, where are you going? Well, next week I'm at the Sahara. You know, I, that's priceless. So Johnny, what he wanted to do in Las Vegas and for that deal was really priceless. And he was putting his own money up and he was going to appear there. And he was going, we, we did a deal with, we, because of Johnny, I had lines, I had entertainers lined up that you could not believe because it was Johnny, you know, who was leading it. So that's the, 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 the part where our deal was really solid deal. And for them to walk from it was clear that it was not about our money or our ability to perform. And it was about? Well, I always to this day still question why Eddie Torres was licensed again, you know, because I knew his history. We all did. 
And, and like the governor was saying, what the state was trying to do, we all knew these people, but it was still time for them to leave. Yeah. When, when there were times where they got grandfathered in, or we used to call, I had a very, back in the Hughes days, we used to say, you're cleansed to everybody who was working in the casinos, meaning nobody's going to get fired once we took them over because no one knew how to run casinos. All the people, we didn't have dealer schools or shift bus schools. When we needed a dealer, we sent word back east and they sent dealers out to us from Chicago or, you know, or, or Cleveland or St. Louis. That's where all the employees came from. Well, the, uh, so, so the, the, the issue about, you know, our deal versus their deal and why we were surprised because Eddie Torres was, go, you know, you go back to the Fremont. The Fremont in the 60s was the suitcase place for all the skim money went to the Fremont. And Eddie and Levinson and Eddie Torres were caught on tape talking to Barry Lansky's right-hand guy about how much they got to increase the skim. They got to get more money out of it. And they were complaining that they had to pay some dividends. He said, I don't care about dividends. You get us this money, you're not getting enough. And so the FBI taped them, but they were illegal wiretaps. They'd stuck them in their sure. bedrooms and everything. So they couldn't go. They tried. They got thrown out. But they did get Levinson to sell out. And Eddie got to walk. Yeah. And then he got licensed at the RIV, you know. But at the same time, we thought that there was this. Because when, when Dorman went, came in, it was Levinson and Dorman, you know. Yeah. I mean, not Levinson. It was Tories. And you turned him down then. Right. So that's what surprised me. But I think. With Wayne there, it gave them a good cover to get Tories in. Governor, did you have any thoughts on that at, at the time? Do you recall these two well, deals and what was you I, know, positive about Newton's deal or Carson's deal? And I, I do remember there was one point where there was a confluence of the two potential buyers. Uh, and it was coming up for discussion before the Gaming Control Board. And um, that was after they walked from us. Yeah. I was at that but, meeting. Uh, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk about before the meeting. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. And we had uh, we had three members of the control board, and it was um, of course it was Richard and it was Glenn Malden, and uh, uh, Jack Stratton, I believe it was. Jack I remember. Stratton. Yeah, I remember. And uh, I remember Jack very well. He was the old guy. He was a wonderful guy. He was wonderful great. Guy. Yeah. He and, called uh, me out several times. But I talked was... to Richard and I said, uh, I can't remember who called who. We spoke very regularly. And uh, he said, yes, Ian said, it may be before this meeting is over that we're going to have to give some indication of uh, what we'd like to see happen. And I said, well, Richard, I'll just tell you one, give you one bit of guidance. It's my wish that you guys stick together on whatever you decide. I don't want, I, I hate to see a divided board or divided commission on, on who's going to proceed with this because we got enough issues already with everything else that we were dealing with. All the other licensing, all the other revocations. I said, please work toward bringing it together. Try to get some unity. And uh, afterward, I was informed that one of the members, I think it was Malden, um, disagreed with, with Richard and didn't, and Richard apparently favored Wayne and was, uh, was, I guess, pretty open about it. He, yeah. he felt like he's a local guy. We know him. Uh, he's an honest guy. Interesting enough, there was very little discussion about his partner, Tories. Yeah, <laughs> who's, who's going to be the operator? Wayne did not operate. Yeah, anymore. I know. Yeah, he'd been running the but yeah. see, Governor, what had happened before that meeting, we, we went before Claiborne and uh, they told Claiborne they were not executing the agreement with us uh, because we kept changing the deal on them. That's what they told her at the go. So that happened before. So we knew we were out yeah. at that meeting. But that was what, not, what, what the regulators that wasn't had public. A, that wasn't public at that point. No, it may not have been public, but there was no choice. We were out. You had, right. you couldn't vote for say for us because you, you can't pick who they sell to. Right. You know, and right. you were in a tough spot. You either approved Tories and Newton on that deal, or that place was going to shut down. Yeah. So there was a lot of pressure on you to make the, the Richard. And I talked to Richard after that. 
because Richard already knew because I told him we were out. I said, you're not deciding between the two of us. What you're deciding really is whether... That's probably why he expressed... That's why he expressed what he, he did. That Wayne... Uh, because I said, you up. can't... He and I talked a lot. I talked to George a lot about it. And, and he, the tough part, and I knew this, and this was what was so hard to explain to Johnny. I knew the tough spot the regulators were in because they either let... And since they'd licensed Tories once before, uh, after the, the, the Fremont, it was probably easy to say, let's do the Newton-Tories deal. And Newton was a good shield for him uh, and let it go. But I also remember at the meeting saying, well, how much, they asked him how much money they were going to bring to the table and put in. And, and Newton said, well, our advisors tell us, because Tories didn't say much of anything in the whole meeting. And uh, Wayne said, well, we got plenty of money in the cage. That was the answer. And no one questioned it on it. But you know the long and the short of the story. A year and a half later, they were bankrupt. So it's so you don't go as far as saying the fix was in. No. You wouldn't know. There was no. There was no. So it was no, just it, what? It was, the bottom line was what? The double cross was the judge. Mm -hmm. That's what you felt was. Because good. we the brought the signed. Intention letter. It wasn't just a, it's, this was our intention. It was, a, it was called an intention letter. And when we wrote the intention letter, it had, at that night, Johnny flew in and we met in the presidential suite up there at the Aladdin. It was Johnny Carson flew in. I was there. Henry came in. Uh, Circus Webby was there. Richard Daly was there. And uh, these David, are all the Aladdin. Uh, David Hurwitz was there. Ownership and, group, yes. And, and they represented all the ownership group, and Daly was the president. And we told them at that meeting it was all Johnny's money and Johnny's guarantee. And we struck the deal. And we, I have it, we all marked it up right there in that room that night. We spent five hours negotiating that night. And it was about one o'clock in the morning. Johnny had gone to bed in the other room. We signed the deal. And, uh, Johnny Carson signed it, and I signed it, and Richard Daly signed it. And so we took that letter, and that's when we announced it, because we had all of the other things negotiated. This wasn't like, okay, now let's put the deal together. We had the contracts all ready to sign. We had all of these, the uh, mortgage money already ready to sign with us. We had done all of that work. So when we went to the judge a week later saying, Your Honor, Here's the agreements. They won't sign them. What are you going to do? What should we do? And the judge just said, I'll take it under advisement. And well, we walked out. That's where we have to take it under advisement, I'm afraid. But this could go on five hours just like I that know. meeting. I'd like it to. But uh, we Sorry, I talked don't know, but we, we do have to come to a halt. But again, we want to thank Jeff Gehrman, who put together the Mobbed Up podcast. Ed Nigro, who put together the deal. <laughs> Governor List, who put together the regulators. <laughs> Again, we want to thank both the Review Journal and the Mob Museum for powering Mobbed Up. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management, and supporting sponsors, the Golden Steer Steakhouse and the El Cortez Hotel and Casino. We want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you and have a good night.